Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of John and what it means for our lives to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today are Josh and Mallory Click. We're glad to have the two of y'all with us today. And Mallory, will you tell us a little bit about how you and Josh met and got married? Yes. So um, it was after our freshman year of college. I was a Georgia girl and he was a Georgia Tech boy. Mm -hmm. And we met on a summer beach project. But we didn't start dating till junior year of college. And we were together three years and got married in 2010. But Josh does have a fun part of the story if you want to jump in, Josh. Yeah, I don't don't know if we shared it or not. So we counted up our conversations one time. But on Beach Project, we hardly talked. I mean, I knew who she was and that was about it. But later that following year, I was driving down the road and just felt overwhelming sense that I was going to marry this girl named Mallory Farmer, and I barely knew her. I thought, you are a crazy person. Like, you know, that sounds awesome, but I don't know this person. (laughs) And anyway, long, long story. He wouldn't leave me alone, and I called a couple good buddies and told them, I I think I'm going nuts, but I really feel like the Lord's telling me something. And um, they said, yeah, I think you're probably going nuts, but, you know, uh, why don't you pray about it? So I did. Uh, I prayed for several months and didn't get any clarity, and... uh, Mallory was at her second beach project um, that summer, and so I decided I was going to go down there and see her and pray very specifically that I'd have clarity when I saw her. And anyway, saw her, and I did, and uh, took her her a minute, but she came around and agreed to marry me, and uh, here we are. Yeah. That is sweet. I do kind of want to tease you just a little bit, because if you were listening and you could see Mallory, you would be like, it was not the Lord's call when you saw her. She is the, about the cutest thing you could imagine. Oh, yeah. Oh, like I said, I was on board sure, from the get-go. The Lord's it just sounded, uh-huh. sounded a little too good to be true. You know. I'm just teasing you. Oh, yeah. I love that. Well, let's move from that into our first things first question. And our first things first question for today is, what was your first regrettable hairstyle? Yes. So here in Augusta, we have something called social where kids learn manners and they learn how to dance. And I remember in middle school, my hairdresser did my hair one night for one of the formal events. And I just remember it was curled and it had this big curly almost bun on top and I had bangs. (laughs) It almost looked like a bird's nest on top. So looking back on those pictures, oh, I I tried to find, I mean, I need to find it. It was painful. Did you like it at the moment? At the moment were you like, yes? I don't know if I'd loved it or I was just not confident enough to tell her that I didn't like it. Like I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Mm -hmm. Oh, so you went and you smiled for the picture. Oh, yes. Oh, it's painful. <laughs> the bird's nest and the bangs. Yes, it was too much. That's funny. Like the flat dramatic bangs or like puffy bangs? The or? ones you, you roll with the brush, okay, you know? Yeah, okay. the dramatic ones. Okay. that's a, I, I can't wait to see the photo. Yes, I'll find it for you. Can you post it on like the show notes or something? <laughs> yeah, sure. Please do. We can add that. Um, so I feel a little targeted by this question, Amber. <laughs> um, that's for funny. those that don't know me, I uh, suffer from my father's genes of having very little hair these days um no so i uh actually i don't know if i regret it i had a, a pretty awesome hairstyle growing up in texas we called it a chili bowl okay. oh, around my. here you call it a bowl cut but okay the look is you take a bowl and put it on the child's head and cut a circle around the bowl and then you kind of shave it high and tight everywhere mm-hmm, up to mm-hmm. that bowl and it's it's a it's a it's you got to be confident to rock that look 
I came. mean, JTT had that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he I probably got it, was, it from I us. I feel like it was a yeah. big thing. He got it from you. <laughs> he sure. he yeah. actually followed suit I with the chili so. bowl. Yeah, so I Caleb and that. I rocked that for a number of years. It was a good look. There's definitely picture evidence of that. I can find it. Love that. it. Did you have the cowlick to, to mm-hmm. boot in no, front? No, just no? solid okay. bowl. Perfect. Mm, perfect, bowl. perfect. The perfect mm-hmm. bowl. Nailed it. So yeah. funny. Unfortunately, I think the most regrettable thing about my hair is that I've had the same hairstyle for a hundred years. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I'm not, I guess, a change it up kind of girl. I think I've just always had the same haircut. And I, I will say in college, <laughs> this is funny. I went on our little church college retreat. Funny how things happen on these retreats. Mine was not as exciting as y'all's, but we were up late, of course. And I guess one of the girls had been working in a salon the summer before. And she's like, oh, let's cut your hair. Maybe I even announced I've always had the same haircut. Which you have to know about Erin at this point is she has very long, beautiful, thick hair. Uh, well, you, you know, do. it is one of those things that in the moment is probably like, I don't know, middle of the night. We're on a church retreat. What are you going to do? You're going to cut somebody's hair. So we go to the local, I don't know, CVS, Walmart, whatever, buy a box of hair color oh. and some hair scissors. The cut proceeds, the, um, which the cut was not even dramatic. I think they just took some inches off. It was nothing crazy. Maybe like a Jennifer Aniston type thing. I don't know. (laughs) And then the dye was the bad part. Like they had like this big brassy orange patch of dye, like right in the back of my part. And I did not follow up and get that repaired. No, ma'am. I no, did you not. did not. You I let it grow not. out. I just let it stay there. I was like, whatever. Was it permanent? I it in bed. <laughs> you are a better woman yes. than most of us. I think I just, I maybe I couldn't see it, so I didn't care. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I self dyed my hair one time only, and I was trying to go from blonde, like I had gotten too blonde with highlights self-highlights this is college when you're too poor to do anything except it's out of the box and it has a cap and you had to pull it through so i was trying to fix the fact that i had pulled too many strands of hair and turned them blonde from that cap and so i just went to the drugstore and i got a box of brown hair dye and i put it on and blonde and brown made green oh, so oh, no. that was disappointing and i was not confident enough to rock that <laughs> i made difference. an appointment and paid my college girl money to oh, have that boy. fixed of course it was my whole head yeah yeah whole head and green like that that's dramatic yeah But I think my most regrettable hairstyle, however, also happened in college. And I had a roommate who was pretty good at cutting hair. I mean, she could trim and she could do bangs and she can, yeah, she could do the basics. But I wanted the Meg Ryan hair. Mm. You remember the Meg Ryan in like the late 1990s where she just was so cute and it was a little spiky out everywhere and pixie. Well, I have thin hair. I have a lot of it. Well, a decent amount of it, but it's thin. It's not going to spike up unless you put a lot of product in it. So she cut it. Not really. That's not an easy haircut to manage. So she cut it, but then it was all close to my head. And it looked like a slight mullet down towards my neck. (laughs) It was a chili bowl. And the only way to get to do anything else was, it was a chili bowl. But not as cool. (laughs) It it was was not as cool. Oh, no. And so, yeah. And I had to live with that for a long time. Because you you can imagine, that takes a while to grow out. I, I do think my problem in college was that I thought I knew what my best look would be. Like, I thought I could pull off Meg Ryan, but I, I'm not Meg Ryan. I couldn't pull off that look. And I thought my friend was capable of giving me the look I wanted, but 
she couldn't do that either. So basically, I had a, a skewed view of reality. And last week, we talked about Jesus's encounter with those whose view of reality, a totally different reality, but a spiritual reality, was also skewed. And so they were thinking, they were acting, they were speaking in the darkness of their unbelief. They didn't see Jesus as the one he claimed to be, even though Jesus told them clearly, I am the light of the world. I am the light of salvation. So connecting our passage last week in chapter eight to our passage this week in chapter 10, we have this inter- this chapter in between, obviously chapter nine, right? <laughs> Everybody knows that. And you find Jesus restoring sight to a man born blind. And there is so much I love about this encounter, especially as it follows and fleshes out Jesus's statement that he is the light of the world. And I wish we could go into it. I highly recommend reading it. Uh, but there's two things I do want us to note about that chapter before we get into our chapter today. And the first is just that the blind man received his physical sight and that that led to spiritual sight and his understanding of Jesus throughout the chapter progresses until Jesus reveals himself ultimately at the end. And I love the progression. Uh, the religious leaders, they wanted an explanation from the blind man about his restored sight. And they really wanted an explanation that they approved of one that didn't exalt Jesus as the Messiah. So they question the blind man, they disdain him, they threaten him. And ultimately they kick him out of the temple, which was more than just a physical action. It was their way of saying that he was now a spiritual outcast. But the blind man is unfazed. You know, when they're questioning him, they're getting aggressive. uh, They're challenging him. They're saying, basically, compared to us, you know nothing. He says, one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And I just love that. It's a beautiful accounting of what it looked like physically and spiritually to believe that Jesus was the Christ in chapter nine. But again, in contrast, those who are truly blinded in their unbelief continue in their arrogance. They continue in their disdain towards Jesus and towards those who believe in him. And that brings us to chapter 10. And Jesus is addressing in chapter 10 that same group that are walking in darkness. And yet he continues to offer his revelation. So if you haven't read chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, that is what we're talking about. And I highly recommend stopping, pausing, reading, and then coming back to the conversation because you get more out of it if you do do that. Uh, Importance of this passage, it contains the third and fourth of Jesus's I am statements. So remember the I am statements would have taken the Jewish listeners right back to Exodus chapter three, where their hero Moses encounters the living God. And he is so overcome by the holiness of the presence of God. He takes off his sandals. He acknowledges he is in the presence of what is holy. He is in the presence of the great I am. So the third of Jesus's I am statements, which is the first one here in this passage, and he's addressing again these religious rulers. He's saying, I am the exclusive way to salvation. I am, he says it this way, I am the gate. I am the sheep gate. Anyone who goes in or out to my sheepfold, basically the religious leaders were in charge of the people. They were tasked to lead faithfully as shepherds, and yet they were refusing to go through the door of salvation. Jesus describes them as thieves and murderers. Anyone who goes into the sheep pen another way is a thief and murderer. But in contrast, the one that goes through the gate is a provider and preserver of life. And that's where Jesus leads into his second I am statement in this passage, which is I am the good shepherd. Obviously, we're landing on two big I am statements here in this little discourse. And I love that you're pulling out the theme of spiritual and physical blindness Mm -hmm. and how often that we are like those religious leaders. We want Jesus to fit our human mold the way that we think he should be fit our expectations. Mm -hmm. 
and not lean on his divine revealing of himself, not looking at these I am statements and saying, this is who Jesus says he is. We should pay heed to this. And we're wanting him to fit into our Mm -hmm. little mold. So I love that you're bringing that out, like the physical and spiritual blindness and knowing that it's the Lord that unveils that for us, that we see that in second Corinthians, that when we turn to him humbly, that he's the one who lifts the veil off our heart and off our eyes. So Obviously an important theme as we show up here. And I think this is just another place that John is just poetically and powerfully directing our attention to who Jesus is. He's saying, I'm the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life to secure the way to God. And prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel would have been tuning the Hebrew heart to look for God to come once more to them as a shepherd king. But they were probably questioning, like, who is this shepherd king going to be? Will it be God himself coming back like we knew him in the garden? Will it be the son of David? Like we've heard about in the prophets um, and the prophets left the door open to both of those possibilities. And lo and behold, Jesus shows up as fully God, 100% God, 100% man, and just blew the socks off mm-hmm. of everyone's expectations. And truly Yahweh was in that place. And he was 100% there as a historical man. He was 100% there as divine. And Jesus is saying it over and over again here in John. We see him in the I am statements. Um, Jesus is saying, ego emi. So in Greek, we're seeing that as it's me. And he's saying, I'm the one. And I can't, I love that. That feels so relatable to me. When I read I am, I'm obviously thinking of Exodus because just being familiar with that scripture. But when I think of him saying like, I'm the one, I'm that guy, like it just, it settles a little bit deeper down for me. And he's saying, I'm the divine presence that Israel was looking for in their scriptures. I'm bringing the forgiveness of sins so that once more I can dwell with you like you knew me in the garden. I'm Jesus, the true reflection and embodiment of the Father himself. And here in chapter 10, we see Jesus is telling us that he's the shepherd king that has been expected. And he's bringing us abundant life and what it looks like to be a sheep in his fold. Aaron, I always love the way that you describe things and I was thinking to that combination of being the gate and the shepherd. Mm -hmm. I love that. Not only am I the way to salvation, but I am the one who walks through that way Mm -hmm. and leads you out in that way. Mm -hmm. And both of those things are are true. So Mallory and Josh, what did you see in this passage that surprised or interested you? I love when we read about all the different encounters Jesus has with the people of that time, that he doesn't have a, a blanket approach to every person. And he also doesn't argue with them and show them, well, did you not see what I just did? Clearly, I am who I say I am. He, In this scenario, he references back to Old Testament scripture, like he does a number of times, but he references back to scripture that these men surely knew. These were likely very well-studied Jews. It wasn't the first time that they had heard references to to a shepherd or a coming shepherd. A few that came to mind, you know, Psalm 23, Lord is my shepherd. David references it. Isaiah, he will tend to his flock like a shepherd. And the big one that I think was most important uh, in Micah 5, cramming a bunch of scriptures together, but... You know, the gist of it, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth uh, for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, and then skip into verse 4, uh, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock. And uh, I'm picturing these men hearing this reference to a good shepherd. Surely they're thinking that, you know, what Jesus is talking about is not just a cute analogy of a shepherd and sheep, but a proclamation of who he is as the good shepherd. So he approaches them in a way that I think they would recognize immediately. They obviously don't want to believe, or at least some of them don't want to believe, but they have to recognize the um, the, the Old Testament connections that, that he's making in that moment. But I just personally love the 
picture of a good shepherd for what what it, he describes it as in in chapter ten, and we see it other places in the Bible. Again, looking back at Psalm twenty three, it references uh, you know a number of different aspects of what being a good shepherd looks like. Verse two, Psalm twenty three. You know, he leads me beside quiet waters. You know, he is a leader. He's not just present, but he is an active leader, protector. Verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear him no evil. He's an active protector. The shepherd was present to physically protect and the uh, the sheep. Um, and then last verse five. You prepare a table before me. He is an active provider as well. Yeah, and we see that a lot of circumstances where that's a discussion that Jesus offers of you know the lilies in the field are clothed. Raven into the sky are fed, but but he is but he is a provider as well. So I love the way he approaches it as always, but a unique way, referencing Old Testament and then providing this picture, revealing just a bit more of, of who he is as a as a savior. Mm-hmm. I love that connection you're making too, and just all those things that you're bringing out from the Psalms show are seen in chapter ten too. Mm-hmm. That protection, that right. provision, that they would have life and have it abundantly. All of those things are things that he's referencing there in chapter mm-hmm. 10 as well. And I like that you make the point that he's coming to those who are opposed to him, Correct. but not in opposition to them. Like he's not threatened by them. It's still an invitation to them. And he is speaking in a way that is meant to be revelation. It's something that they would have understood. He's not just pulling That's these right. ideas from nowhere. He is hearkening back to what they know and that they claim that they love, which right. is God's word. And he's using a metaphor that they can understand, that yep. they know what it is living in Palestine at that time. They know what it is to be a shepherd and a sheep and to have a gate and all of the implications that we don't really know because you know we do think kind of cute Sunday school illustration, you have the shepherd and the sheep, but right. it would have been a very much a real life right. metaphor for them and they would have been making connections. That's right. So the part of the passage that really interested me was closer to the end, verses 16 to 21. And in particular, verse 16, when Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen, I must bring them also. So just the idea of other sheep and that he must bring them. I listened to a sermon on this passage, and one of the challenge questions the pastor asked was, what does it mean to be a church for others? Hmm. So it just makes me consider my own life and those in my life that are unbelievers and how I can minister to them and shepherd them. And as we are leading up to our missions conference here at the church, we watched a video this past Sunday of a man who gave us testimony of the impact missions conference had had on his life. And one of the things he reminded us of is that we all have different gifts and each of our gifts can be used to meet the needs of others. So you really don't have to travel overseas to be a church for others. So just thinking again about my life, the idea that there's always more room at the table is just really important Mm -hmm. to me and Mm -hmm. something that I really want my children to understand. That's so good. I think that was a theme I kind of pulled out of as well is just the unity that you see with one true shepherd and one true fold. And I think, you know, Jesus is probably pointing to. I've come to you as the Jews and you will understand me like you were saying with those Old Testament prophecies like I've come in a context that you should know and understand but I'm also here for the Gentiles like I will welcome them into the fold but also I love how that you're giving us context to think of that today like who are the others who are those that are maybe outside of our regular fellowship and I think that there's also just a call for us to be charitable to anyone who names the resurrected Jesus as their savior, like to involve them in our community and not, you know, try to be exclusive or be the smartest or whatever, like how we tend to do, like, you know, section ourselves out. 
but instead be in that unified fold, like cheering each other on, like all for God's glory. So I think there is definitely a theme of unity and fellowship there that you've pulled out. Um, just spiritual blindness, I think is another big theme that we've kind of already talked about, but how it's enhanced by arrogance, I think is in there, how it's enhanced by our self-sufficiency, how our, our spiritual blindness, even if we belong to the Lord, like when we're motivated by fear, that can cause spiritual blindness. When we're earthly minded versus being eternally minded. And ultimately, for those that are outside of the fold, like you might claim the name of Christ, and but you're not submitting to his th- authority. Like we're, we might be one of those sheep that he's describing that are inside the gate, but are maybe like the hireling or just like the, the sheep in the, or the wolf in the sheep's clothing. So I think all of those things are just very serious things to consider. And the other thing that kind of stuck with me, Mallory, you mentioned this too, just the voice piece of it, how we do have so many voices that are constantly talking to us or even just in our head. And I was reading a, um, one of Augustine's homilies about this and his comment on this piece was for it's easy to hear Christ, easy to praise the gospel, easy to applaud the preacher, but to endure to the end is peculiar to the sheep who hear the shepherd's voice. And just what a comfort and a blessing it is to know the peace and the joy of walking with a Savior who does commune with us, who does minister to us in specific ways and call us by name. So as we think about uh, this passage, let's think about the characters in the text and how they responded to Jesus and what do their actions and words teach us about our own? What do you think, Mallory? So as we talked about before this passage, Jesus heals a man born blind and the Pharisees investigate the healing. Some believe Jesus and some call him demon possessed. In verse 21, it says, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I think about how gracious God is to give us signs to believe and um One of our closest friends has been walking through an ALS diagnosis and recently was awarded the Quiet Hero Award at an event that supports ALS. And during a speech, he talks about how Jesus healed the paralyzed man, which, of course, he resonates with. And he challenged us to be both hopeful and expectant. So I'm praying that I, too, would be hopeful and expectant. And I also think about the confidence and the bravery of the people at the end of this passage, which is both an encouragement and a challenge to me that I would know when to speak and how to speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I wouldn't be hesitant out of fear of what others might think or fear of hurting a relationship. Yeah, and I think through you know we, the, the end of this section, there's two responses. There's some that believe and there's some that don't. And, you know, I think about that in modern context or any context where Jesus is being presented and some are accepting and some are not. And, you know, it shouldn't be surprising. I think that's what's common then. It's common now. But what my brain goes to passage that I, I, I like a lot in Second Corinthians 2, there's, you know, Paul talks about the body of Christ being the aroma of, of Christ. And that aroma is an aroma of life to some and it's an aroma of death to others, meaning the gospel is something that saves, but it's also something that condemns if we choose not to to believe in Christ as our Savior. And and that's what we're seeing, I feel like, in these last two verses, is you're seeing some men that are just so prideful that they are not, they're just they're refusing to admit that this is the Christ, that this man is the Messiah that was that was prophesied. Then you have others that 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 you know have this aroma of Christ and they realize this is this is who he says he is. He is who he says he is. Uh, and there's life and salvation there. Mallory and I like to talk about at the house, we call it speaking truth. 
to one another, speaking truth to ourselves. And, and that's what I think the second guy is doing. And what we might mean by that is buying into some lie that we've heard, allowing ourselves to get down about, and we speak truth to ourselves. So that means we're just reminding ourselves of things we know to be true. We know that Jesus loves us. We know that we're unconditionally uh, loved. We know his grace is enough. All these things that we find assurance and and, uh, and peace in. And, and I see that in this second guy. He says, these are not words of one who's oppressed by a demon, you know, and then can a demon, demon open the eyes of the blind? He's not quite sure what to think about this, but he sticks to what he knows is true. There's objective truths that are right in front of him that he's putting to the forefront of his mind. And, you know, I think leading him hopefully to a saving faith. But I think that's something that, uh, you know, we practice that. And I, and I think it's worth practicing when we find ourselves in times where we're not quite sure, we're questioning something, we're struggling with assurance, whatever it is of finding those truths that we can cling to and hold solid to and put those in the front of our eyes, and they kind of bring the rest of things into more clarity at that point. Yeah, it does. What stood out to y'all, continuing on to just think about what Christ claims about himself in this passage, what did he say that challenged your belief in him or furthered your belief in him? I keyed in on the concept of hearing Jesus' voice, and I just real quick to read the few verses that that, that comes out, just relevant to the, the sheep and the good shepherd. Uh, it says, The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes out before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And it, if I can tell a quick story, I feel like this is relevant. Um, what makes me think of, my mom doesn't like this story, but she'll be all right. Um, <laughs> when I was 12, um, my dad took me on my first big solo backpacking trip. And so we go to Colorado and there's this beautiful place called Chicago Basin and just long, long story, but just desolate, absolute wilderness, literally not a person for a hundred miles. You won't see anybody once you get there. Anyhow, we're hiking. I've got this pack that weighs more than I do at the time. I I was tiny, tiny, tiny. And my dad has this very specific camp spot we're getting to um, on the side of this mountain. And we're hiking and hiking, and I am not keeping pace. I'm dragging, and it's starting to get dark, and we need to get the camp set up. And so my dad has a bright idea. He's a very logical, engineering-minded person like myself. He says, well, we don't want to set up camp in the dark, and it's getting dark, so here's what we're going to do. You keep on at whatever pace you can. I'm going to go ahead and get to this spot and uh, get it set up. And then when I get there, he has this little emergency whistle. I'm going to blow this emergency whistle. You'll know know, where I am, and and everything will be fine. And and before he goes, he reminds me of, of all the bear rules because this is bear country and you know what, oh what did bears smell like they smell like wet dogs okay um, what uh, <laughs> what do you do if you see a bear you encounter one you stay stand your ground you know hold your hands up act act big everything and he says okay so he takes off and it is dark at this point not a person in a million miles he is gone and i'm doing my best dragging my feet and everything smells like wet dog (laughs) and there's bears all around in my brain and he thought the campsite was you know a hundred yards away and it was not and i don't know how long goes by but i end up sitting down at the base of this tree and i don't know what's going on my dad's gone it's dark in the middle of the wilderness there's no one for a million miles but I hear these heavy footsteps come screaming down this trail, and I hear this loud voice, and I know whose voice it was. Mm. It was, 
it was a voice I recognized. It was one I took comfort in. Um, and it's one I was listening really carefully, hoping I would hear any second. Mm-hmm. It was my dad. And as soon as he got there, I was, I was cared for. I was protected. I was safe. And it, it makes me think of the same way that the sheep are listening and, and for the voice of the shepherd, that they feel safe when they hear the voice of the shepherd. And so my, my brain kind of thinks that in that little moment, my brain was in tune to listening for one thing that I knew was my, my safety at that point. And, and I want my brain to be tuned that same way, listening to the voice of Jesus, that there's a million voices that surround us and we intentionally or unintentionally tune our brains to, and we've got to fight that. That's a very active thing. So, you know, thinking through how do we tune our brains to focus on Jesus, to focus on that singular voice. You know, we talk a lot about a calling of the Holy Spirit in our lives, bringing us to faith, but the Lord's voice in our life is more than just the singular moment of coming to salvation. You know, we were mentioning earlier the it's a lifelong communion. You know, our eternity starts now, this relationship starts now, and it continues forever. So, you know, listening for that voice on a daily basis, tuning our brains to where we are ready to receive the Word of the Lord through whatever form it is, the Bible, a sermon, or, or hearing His voice in another way, but, you know, trying to, to actively tune our brains to, to listen to that is kind of what pops out at me. Well, you know what I love about that is that you weren't sitting underneath that tree saying, okay, now I got to remember to listen to my dad's voice. I got to remember to listen to my dad's voice. I'd rather listen to the coyote Mm -mm. and the whatever. (laughs) You don't want to hear the coyote. You don't want to smell the bear. You just are longing for his voice. And because you knew that it offered that care and that protection. And I think somebody mentioned this to me earlier today. They just said the difference or something that they read that stuck out to them is that shepherds in that time really did lead their sheep. And sometimes when we think of shepherding, we think of like shepherding dogs and they corral their sheep and they nip at their heels and they Mm -hmm. force them, you know, through the gate and they have got no choice. They're driven. But the difference between being driven and being led and just that, that continual belief, like your voice is good. It offers me protection, salvation. And and they reference that in verse 12, just the difference in the voices, you know, the hired hand versus the shepherd. So, Mm -hmm. You know, in my mind, the hired hand is basically any voice that's not Jesus' voice, yeah, yeah. right? The, mm-hmm. the hired hand at the sign of trouble, the hired hand gets out of there. It's not worth it. He doesn't care that much about the sheep. He's just yeah. there for paycheck, and he's gone. And the shepherd, again, literally is willing to lay their life mm-hmm. down. Yeah, so as the good shepherd, Jesus leads us. He protects us, cares for us, knows us by name, lays down his life for us, saves us, and gives us life. And I can't help but think about my own earthly father, how he led our family. He protected us. He provided for us. He served us and loved and cared for us. So I truly believe that his love for me as a child enabled me to understand God's love for me. So my hope for my own children is that um, they would know the Good Shepherd's voice in just the way that, that we love and care for them. I think sometimes we maybe overcomplicate that. And um, there's just not really a formula that Jesus alone saves. Mm. Man, I guess that that is ultimately the bottom line. And I think as I was looking at that text, uh, the abundant life passage pops out at me. Obviously, like who doesn't want to live in abundance? Like that sounds awesome. I think sometimes we have such a bad I- idea of what that abundance life might mean. Just I've been looking at the Westminster Confession a little bit, and I feel like it just gives us that in a, a concise way, like assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the spirit, increase of grace, perseverance to the end, and the hope of life eternal. Like that is that is abundant life that we cannot buy. I think we, we get that confused so often. 
And the other the other part that was challenging, that's the fun part, I think, of that passage, like, oh, Jesus, thank you for this goodness that you've brought to me. I think the challenging part, which, and Jesus is like that, like, yeah. you're going to have the comfort of who he is, and then the challenge of laying down your life willingly. Mm. Man, that is, I think, a piece of it that is real. We see that at the cross, obviously. And then he's inviting us as his sheep to be those type of people that will lay down their lives um, for the flock. And you mentioned that hired hand. I think that when he's he's almost juxtaposing himself to that hired hand, he's going to offer us correction and rebuke when we are off base. He's going to defend the flock when we are weak. He sincerely loves the flock and he's challenging us to do the same thing. Closing out our time, and let's think about what are the implications of this text as we try to apply this um, to our lives. What does that look like? Well, first, just the hope for our children's salvation, verse 14 and 15. Uh, Jesus says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. So just that the Lord would make himself known to our children and that our children would know him. And then second, I thought about what it looks like to be present and not distracted and to hear the Lord's voice. I don't want to be so distracted or so busy that I'm not loving well or shepherding well. One of my closest friends isn't on social media, and she always seems to send a word of encouragement at just the right time. So I'm convinced she's less distracted and so in tune to the Holy Spirit and His voice. So I just want to make sure that I'm hearing His voice. And then I think last, I was challenged with the question, are there false shepherds in my life? The beginning of the chapter talks a lot about false shepherds and how you'll recognize them. And I think sometimes we might think of a person, but I think really maybe it's stuff we're reading or watching or even possibly listening to. Mm, yeah, it's a good insight. You know, there's kind of two parts to this analogy in my mind. You know, one is the good shepherd who is Christ, but the other is the sheep, and that's us. And I think it's it's worth thinking through the aspects of who the sheep is and what that says about us. And we were kind of alluding to, uh, you know, the sheep earlier, you know, the, the sheep is not very smart, right? The sheep uh, is helpless. It can't really defend itself. It doesn't know where to go. And, you know, especially being good Reformed Presbyterians, we're usually pretty comfortable being totally depraved, right? We're, we're not able to save ourselves. But I think it's a, it's a good exercise for us to identify with that sheep, that we are desperately in need of a Savior eternally, but we're also desperately in need of a good a good shepherd. And so I think living lives of of humble dependence is kind of is the goal. So we want to believe in Jesus and and lean on him for our salvation, of course, but on a daily basis, reminding ourselves that we're the sheep and we desperately need a good shepherd to get through the day. So anyway, that, that that's kind of encouraging to me and a good practice, I think, to put ourselves in that position to, to lean on Christ on a daily basis. Yeah, like how you're bringing out sheep and shepherds, thinking it, there are a lot of Old Testament references to that. And a lot of times when Israel is struggling, um, either for causes of their own sin or her sins perpetrated against them, you have that reference to their like sheep without a shepherd, you know, they're scattered. And we are people who only function well with a shepherd. We know that, like you said, where you're comfortable with, as Presbyterians, we say that we're comfortable with our depravity, but we're not very comfortable with that functionally, not in our culture. You're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think exactly. I think that we're comfortable with it from a eternal, I once was lost and, and now I'm saved. We're comfortable with that part, but yeah. we're not comfortable with 
okay, after that, I'm still a helpless sheep. Yes. That's the part that I think is challenging. Yes, I yeah. agree completely. Spiritually, and then it's not like you can really divide these, but practically, and obviously spiritually and practically go together, but we sure. do a lot to try to make our lives work well, and we think a lot of the things that we do to try to make our lives work well. And that was one of the challenges to me, thinking about that, that there is one way to salvation. It was it was a challenge to me, that implied to how I parent my kids. I think you mentioned that a little bit too, Mallory. I just thought, man, what do I think is salvation for them? I mean, of course, I know what I you know, think is ultimate, like you said, eternal salvation. And, and probably, definitely, if you were to ask me, I would say their daily life depends on their relationship with Christ's work for them and what he has done for them is doing for them. But is that how I function? Like, do I think their salvation is how they do in school or where they go to college? Or did they stay away from doing A, B, and C? Or those are the things I give my effort to and are those the things that I'm communicating to my children matter the most or am I shepherding them pointing them to the gate and trusting the shepherd to take them in and out or am I hopping over the wall trying to get them to adhere to some other form of of self-salvation so I know I do it to myself and it's that fighting that I think just to be cautious of doing that to my kids we were studying you know obviously previously in John John the Baptist is on the scene and you know noting that John the Baptist, when some of his disciples see Jesus, they leave John the Baptist and they yeah. go and they follow him. Yeah. And John the Baptist is okay with it. He's excited about it. And so, yeah, the struggle, I think, for us sometimes is are we trying to pull our kids towards Christ or are we, or are we pointing our kids mm. towards Christ, which is what John the Baptist did. Yeah, and I think, too, just even when that John the Baptist reference made me think of how his love for the Savior is burning out of him. I know George would mention that often, and that image just stuck with me, like how the love of Christ burns its way out of us, and that is what, like the attractiveness of Jesus and all that he offers, even though he's asking us to lay down our lives, he is challenging us not to just be biblical scholars or to loaf through life and just be a good person. Like, he's pushing back against that. It's not like he's just saying you can stay like you are, but he's also just attractively offering like, I have given you abundant life and it is life eternal. And that is, I think, what John the Baptist is putting on display. And it is, it is a beautiful and uh, an offer like no other. So lots to consider, lots mm-hmm. to worship here of our Lord and um, grateful for this text. Mallory and Josh, thank you for joining us today. Listeners, we hope you'll join us again next week. Let us keep you company while you're doing your chores or out for an evening run. Claire Inouye and Julie Brower will be joining us next week for a special episode focusing on international missions. Claire is currently living in Nairobi and Julie and her family are living here in Augusta and going back and forth to Haiti. We look forward to hearing from these ladies in the many ways that the Lord is at work and his global church. We hope that you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of you're shining to cheer it after the rain.